Good morning, everyone. I want to thank you so much, and Pastor and Session, thank you for allowing me to fill your pulpit this morning. We did have a wonderful time yesterday talking about mercy and uh, the role of the, uh, deacons. And uh, I told the deacons yesterday, deacons are my heroes because I grew up poor. I grew up uh, having the experience of deacons knocking on our door with bags of groceries in their arms and bringing relief to our family. Uh, so I just celebrate you and applaud you, and, and I just want to encourage men and women uh, that you would f- hear the God's call to mercy, uh, in, in whether it's in a formal office or you're, you're just helping out, but this ought to be the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, I do want to tell you that even though I am a Presbyterian, I like amens in church. So uh, do that at the appropriate moments, okay? Not when I say finally and you say, amen. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Today uh, we are going to be preaching uh, from the epistle of James, uh, chapter 2. And we're going to begin at verse 1. When I... I have done that, I will pray, and I'll try to remember what my three points are. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Father, we are here gathered in Jesus' name 
to worship you. We thank you so much, Lord God. You are worthy. You are the only one worthy of worship. We are sinners. We have confessed it to you. We have heard the words that we are forgiven in Christ and we rejoice in that. We're asking now, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you'd anoint me to preach your holy word, that you would illuminate all of our hearts to understand it, that you would give us the grace to obey it. And we pray, Lord, for just a wonderful revival in our souls as we believe that you love us. We ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Your pastor has told me that in this season of Lent, he's been preaching a series on certain challenges to the church. And so uh, that's why you see uh, in your bulletin, the title of this sermon is The Challenge of No Mercy. Now, can you imagine a church with no mercy? Yeah. Unfortunately, I can. And far too many other people, they don't have to imagine it. They've actually experienced it. Believe it or not, there are people who gather in Jesus' name and call themselves a church that are as mean and hard-nosed and as unwelcoming as you could imagine. They have become kind of a closed group of folk. And when anybody who comes in who's not their culture, not their class, not their color, not their ethnicity, speaks with the wrong accent, all of a sudden, no mercy. And we bring shame to the name of Jesus and his glorious church when that happens. So yeah, I can imagine it. You can too. Some of you have probably been in such situations, and it's been unpleasant. My wife is African American, for those of you who didn't know that. And because of my position in the denomination, I get to travel a lot, and I visit a lot of churches. And sometimes my wife is nice enough to go with me, and I appreciate that. But sometimes we'll walk into a church, people will greet me, and totally ignore her. And then they find out she's my wife. Then things change a little bit. Or they hear her sing. Then they change a lot, you know. But it's often that very first impression you get when you walk into a church you're visiting that really kind of breathes out to you what you're walking into. There's a challenge of no mercy in the church. So I want to list you my three points, uh, and I do that so you will help me to remember them since I don't have any notes, okay? And this is the first one, is the very real challenge of not discriminating in church. The very real challenge of not discriminating in church. My second point is the bottom-up irony of God's grace. The bottom-up irony of God's grace. And the third point is the radical hospitality of Jesus. The radical hospitality of Jesus. Did somebody write those down? Good, because if I get there and say, what's the next one? I'm depending on you to help me. All right. Now, I, I just want to admit to you, and I think we should all admit, that trying to live a life where we do not discriminate and judge others is not easy. Because, you see, every human being grows up in a culture. 
Now, one of the, our failures, I think, in a lot of our churches is we, we don't teach our people about culture. We just sort of assume it. You come to church, you dress a certain way, you kind of learn, learn a code, you know. Uh, you know, restaurants say no, no shirt, no shoes, no service. You don't, you don't usually have to put up that kind of sign in church. You don't come in here without a shirt on, all right? I mean, I, unless you're at a beach church, I guess. But we have cultural norms, and we grow up that way, especially for us Presbyterians. We love covenant children, and we talk about uh, the family and how important that is to us, and we baptize babies, and the whole church takes uh, a vow to help raise this child. We're all godparents, and we believe in the importance of Christian families. And so we want to raise our children right, right from infancy in the church of Jesus. We want them to know about Christ and to love Christ and to always believe in Christ. Amen? Amen. But what happens is they grow up in our culture. This is normative to them. The way you sing. You know, my wife is an African-American. She says she doesn't understand white people who can sing and not move. <laughs> you know, because my wife sings in her head. You know, it's, it, it, you know she, she is a, a gospel singer, and she was also classically trained, and so music just pours out of her. But she knows the, the radical difference in culture. And, you know, when our, the church I pastored called New City Fellowship is a cross-cultural church. We planted that church in the black community to reach African-American folks and to reach poor folks. And so we're a majority white church. And the white folks come with the idea we are here to be missionaries to this community, which means we don't come as white people demanding that black folks worship our way. And, oh, some funny things happen. Like we have a choir. And half the choir doesn't know what direction to sway in. <laughs> they don't know what beat to clap on. And it's a training process. You know, where, where, you know, they're, it's kind of, I mean, literally, sometimes you see people bouncing into each other and, oh, okay, I got to get with the program here. That's culture. You know how, I mean, even this, you know, some years ago, this would have caused in churches. See these things over here? What in the world is this? And these things with strings on them? No, the, there was only one heavenly instrument. That was the pipe organ. You know. You people have obviously gone liberal or something. <laughs> now, th those, those are things we laugh about. But... All of us have our innate prejudices, and we don't, sometimes don't even know we have them. You know, people walk in, and we, they're not dressed correctly, or we've never met them before, and they are a different ethnicity. We're not quite sure who they are, what they are. You know, we, we don't even know, you know, and, you know, for a lot of us Americans, we're kind of blunt, you know, where are you from, you know, and... Uh, we, we, there are certain accents we like. Like if I had a Scottish accent or British accent and was preaching this morning, you would all think I was a lot more spiritual than I really am. <laughs> because it's like anybody who can preach in that accent 
they're theologically astute. They know God, all right? But if somebody has a real thick accent from some country that we particularly don't like, it's really irritating. I want you to know that's a very real challenge. You know, we, I don't even know if this is true of you, but do any of you sit in the same place every Sunday? You know, it used to be in America that if you wanted to do that, you had to pay for the pew. If you go to Williamsburg, Virginia, you go to the, uh, the uh, Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson used to go to, their names are on certain pews. They had a family pew. They paid for it. They knew they were going to sit there. When they came to church, if Thomas Jefferson ever came to church, they knew that if they came to church, they would sit in that pew. Now, you all know it too. And when you walk in and a visitor's sitting there, there's a certain moment of aggravation. How dare you? Now, your name, obviously, you don't put names on these chairs. But it's, it's it, do you get what I'm saying? There's a very real challenge. Now, here James is talking about something that really was something that just jumped out at him as a problem for the church of Jesus Christ. You, you are actually having worship where you are discriminating between the wealthy and the poor. A poor person comes to church and you insult the person by saying, you stand over there. Or look, just sit at my feet. But if a wealthy person comes in and he's wearing gold and, and he's got fine clothing, everybody knows, whoa, look who came to church this morning. You know, we're so happy and proud. We've got somebody famous. We Americans are the same, but we usually do it with celebrity. You know, if somebody's kind of famous, man, Aren't we lucky that they came to our church today and we want to give them the special place? We might even give them a chance. Oh, get up and say a few words. And yet somebody who comes in, they, maybe they didn't even have a bath in the last couple of days and their clothes look rough and they're unshaven and their hair's all puffed out. And it, you never know. What kind of things might really irritate you? We used to have a ch- uh, at New City, sometimes we'd have a whole row of people with like purple hair and spikes, you know. And then you had a, a row of Africans over here in all their African clothing. And, and, you know, the people who dressed down were our lawyers and doctors. The professional people, they wanted to come in Bermuda shorts, never wear a tie, you know. They just wanted to relax and so you weren't always quite sure who really had the money or the power, all right? Brothers and sisters, I've come today just to acknowledge, first of all, this is not so simple as me telling you, don't do that. Don't discriminate. Don't be prejudiced against people. It's easy to say that, but we are all cultural beings, and we all do have those prejudices. And I will tell you, that in itself does not make you a racist, and it does not necessarily make you a a wicked person. It makes you normal. 
But it is an issue you got to deal with. You know, uh, you get in these conversations, you know, in, in being in an interracial marriage, we get in these conversations a lot. There's some people who say, is that racist? And somebody immediately says, I'm not racist. Okay, you just act that way. Okay, I would never call you a racist. I'm just saying the way you act gives us suspicion. Okay. So that's a real issue for you. And you gotta, you got to come to face-to-face with it and say, why am I treating this person like this? Now, this is particularly in the context of worship. We're not talking out in, in the field of business or education or social life. We're talking about the house of God. That, that if anybody had a reputation, you know what? Your life may be messed up. But when you go there, they'll welcome you. you. You may have had tons of trouble. You may, everybody else may shun you. People may cross the street to get away from you. But when you come in there, the people are going to greet you. They're going to sit next to you. They're going to welcome you. They might invite you to lunch. They might say, I want to get to know you and have a relationship with you. You, know, you see, you say, well, hey, whoa, whoa, pastor, you're going past this. I don't mind sitting next to somebody. I ain't going to lunch with them. No, see, see, the whole point is that our welcome would be genuine. But you you and I have to get in touch with our own prejudice when they pop up in our mind, when, when we have the emotional response to people. We've got to recognize it for what it is. And remember, this is not of Christ. This might be my background. It's the way, you know, all your life, maybe your mom and dad said, I don't want you playing with those kids because they're a bad influence. And now you come to church and the pastor says, those are the very kids you need to associate with because they need Christ. They need, do you agree with me? Do people need Jesus? How are they ever going to meet him if the people who follow Jesus will have nothing to do with them? So that's my first point. It's just a very real challenge. It's an issue culturally. And it may not be something you sat down and made a decision once. You know what? I'm I'm not going to like those people. I've just decided. From now on, if I see them, if I'm around them, I'm going to be mean to them. Hardly anybody does that. It just sort of, boom, happens. And at that point, you need to repent. And you need to, you know, it's one of the things we need better to do. Usually we let missionaries get some cultural training and like to understand those kind of things. It's the average American Christian who never pays any attention to it until all of a sudden you're accused of being something you don't want to be accused of. You with me? All right. What was my second point? The bottom-up irony of God's grace. Bottom up. Now, and you notice what James says here. He says, don't you know that God has chosen the poor? Now, right there, you, you might be offended. I don't like that. I thought God was not a respecter of persons. I would have preferred for James to say, just treat everybody the same. Because everybody's the same. Now, there is, there is biblical reason 
to think that God treats everybody the same. We go back to Romans, and in Romans it says this wonderful phrase, there is no difference. Right there, Romans is saying there is, and he's talking about all, the whole human race and every human being, there is no difference. Watch what comes next. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The great leveler of humanity is our total depravity. (laughs) The great leveler of human beings is our common sinfulness. Now, you, you know, James here goes out of his way to say, you know, if you break the law in one point, you are guilty of being a law breaker. You can't So he says, let's stop this game of saying, okay, yeah, well, I've sinned, but I didn't do that. Now, even this morning, as we read from the confession, we talked about there are differences in sins. There are some sins that are heinous. Do you like that word? And there are some sins that are not so heinous. You say, man, I just don't want, you know, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a heinous sinner. At least not yet. What the the doctrine of total depravity says is that we are all unable to come to God on our own. We are all broken in our sinfulness. And it's really only God's grace that keeps us back from being as bad as we could be. But if you're in touch with yourself, you know at times you're pretty nasty. You know you're capable of some pretty bad stuff. James says, look, You're a lawbreaker. Stop lording it over people that you think you're better than. And then he says this. Now, there's a point at which we are different. Some of us are born with privilege. Some of us are born with wealth. Some of us have a two-parent family. My father abandoned my family when I was four years old. I know what it means to live in a broken home. I know that yearning, that loneliness, that that hole in my heart is, is there because my father was not, all right? So I am not like everybody else in that regard. An awful lot of people are in prison are like me because the majority of people in prison were abandoned by their fathers. They, they, there's, it has a detrimental effect on the way you grow up, the way you think about yourself, Okay? I grew up poor, and I know that scarred me, and, it, and I, bear, I bear the struggle of it even today. And James says, there is a difference. There's a difference between the wealthy and the poor. You say, I don't like that. I don't like that from James. Hey, Jesus loves us all the same. Please understand this. God has always loved the broken. He's always loved the outcast. He is always concerned about the widow, about the orphan, about the stranger, about the poor. It's all through Scripture. He says, Paul says in Corinthians, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise, but God has taken the things that are nothing to bring to naught the things that are. Jesus says, 
Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. He says, if any of you want to see the kingdom, you must come as a little child. Even in this book, James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the gospel which we preach. God loves the poor. You say, oh, he loves them more than he loves the rich? I I wouldn't necessarily say he loves them more, but he particularly focuses on them. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And here's one of our problems in our American evangelical churches and in the Presbyterian church in America. We are blessed We are one of the wealthiest denominations in the country. Our churches are made up of professional people, partly because we have a strong commitment to family. We raise our kids. They aspire to get an education. They succeed. We are blessed. And that very blessing can make us captured by materialism. Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in heaven, not in your stuff, not in your house, not in your cars, not in your achievements, not in the business you own. You know, are you one of those parents you know, where, where you got a bumper stick in your car? I got an honor roll student, you know. And my neighborhood, it's my student beat up your honor roll student, you know. (laughs) We can take pride in so many things. And I got four great kids, and I now have 15 grandchildren. And I just give God glory and praise for it that none of my kids got sent to jail. You know, hallelujah. Yet. Uh, What I'm trying to say is that God takes the beggar from the dung heap. This is in Hannah's prayer in 2 Samuel, and Mary quotes from it in the, in the Magnificat. God takes the ones on the bottom, raises them up to sit on top. Take the beggar from the dung heap to have him sit among princes. That is God's ironic bottom to the top grace. That shouldn't be the way it goes. It should be the people of achievement, the people of wealth, people of education, the people of skill. These are the ones God should love. And God says, yeah, but they're just eating up with their own pride. They won't admit their fault. They won't admit their brokenness. And therefore, they can't come to me. If you want to come to Christ, if you're wealthy, if you're middle class, if you got everything going for you, you still need to come as a little child. You still need to come in your weakness and cry out for mercy. You need to come to him and say, I can't do this on my own. What, is, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So I want you to understand, this is the way the grace of God works. And that's one reason we should love poor people. And we should love broken people. 
because God loves them so much. He who lends to the poor lends to the Lord, Proverbs says. Now, my third point is what? The radical hospitality of Jesus. You know, Jesus was always getting in trouble with the Pharisees because they had the same problem we did. They, they gave their lives to living right. They wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to keep the law. They wanted to make sure that everything was legalistically done. They didn't want to eat the wrong food. They didn't want to eat with the wrong people. They didn't want to do the wrong thing. And Jesus comes along, and in you know, Luke 15, here's this great accusation against Jesus. This man eats with sinners and welcomes them. Is that not one of the greatest accusations you have ever heard? As if for the rest of eternity, we would look at that and say that's a bad thing. And there's no one in heaven who's going to look at that accusation and think, you know, they were right. he was bad to do that. Because all of us who get to heaven are going to look back and say, thank God. Thank God. The radical hospitality of Jesus has always been he hangs and associates with the wrong people that the world considers wrong. He is the Savior who loves sinners and eats with them. He didn't, you know, there are some people who do mercy by, we call it drive-by mercy. They don't ever want to really know a poor person. They, They want to go through a neighborhood and hand out stuff. They don't ever want to get out of the car. They don't want to ever go into somebody's house. They don't ever want to get in the car with them. They don't, they don't ever want to have a relationship with them. The Bible doesn't teach us to do mercy tourism where we just have a sort of an urban plunge and we we can see it a little bit, but we say, thank God we don't have to live there. God wants poor people to come to your church. And he wants you to invite them and be happy about it. God wants you to go out in the highways and byways and compel people to come in. Not just to the gospel, but to the house of the gospel. It's one thing, well, hey, look, I don't mind flying over the neighborhood and dropping leaflets. Maybe they'll get saved. But I sure don't want to be there. Listen, I understand issues of safety. I grew up in the hood. I know what it's like to experience violence and theft and hostility. The church keeps moving away from those very kind of folk. Now, you're in a blessed place, and hopefully you all live in a safe neighborhood, and you all have enough food to eat at night. I really don't know how you're going to be able to experience this, but I just want to warn you, there is a challenge to the church that you would ever become a community of no mercy. Don't ever let that be said of you. You see, because this is the closing part of this text. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And every one of you are blessed because that's so. If God held you accountable for all your sins, where would you be? 
but he forgave you. And he, and he keeps on forgiving you, doesn't he? I mean, has any, any of you ever sinned after you got saved? Tell the truth, people. I didn't hear any amens there. No, we all do. And we all keep coming back to the cross. And we all keep coming back to that fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hallelujah.